You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. back in the spring a series entitled A Beautiful Mess where we looked at the first six chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians and um, we hit pause on that for the summer and are now coming back around to that. So you could say this is A Beautiful Mess part two or continued or the sequel um, or too messy, too beautiful, however you want to label that. But um, I would encourage you if you're new or if this is a refresher for you to go back and listen to the messages from the spring and catch yourself up a little bit. I do think that you can engage this fall with us and, and not have engaged back in the spring really well. You, you don't have to have seen the first movie in order to engage the sequel in, in this situation. I'm going to be referring back to those first six chapters on a regular basis to kind of connect the dots for us anyway. But that's just a good exercise, I think. So I'd encourage you to go back and do that this week. Go to the website, listen to um, those messages from back in the spring. This morning is a little bit daunting because we're going to talk about some very heavy subject matters. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce and singleness and sex. And so when I woke up on Monday morning, uh, I, I felt a little devastated, to be honest with you, because I'm a person who likes to just kind of package everything up, put a bow on it, and just hand it off to you and say, this is everything that God has to say about sex. This is everything that God has to say about marriage. This is everything that God has to say about singleness and so forth and so on. And that's not where this passage is going. So somewhere along the way, about Monday afternoon, mid-afternoon, I became keenly aware that that's not my purpose, Uh, My purpose is to simply unpack the scriptures as God has laid them out. And so this morning is not going to be a treatise on marriage or singleness or divorce or sex. This is not going to be a systematic theology of these topics. There's no way that we could go there. And in fact, we're not supposed to. The Apostle Paul is engaging in a Q&A with the Corinthian church. As we pick back up in chapter 7, verse 1, we begin with these words. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so up to this point, Paul's going off of hearsay, and he's addressing the the church in Corinth through the first six chapters of the book. But as we get to chapter 7, Paul's now responding to correspondence that's come his way. We don't know if uh, the church in Corinth is asking him questions or if they're very sternly making statements about what they believe and pushing those things upon the Apostle Paul. But either way, Paul is responding to some very specific things that the church in Corinth is bringing to bear in the conversation. And so, if you come in this morning expecting to walk away with a comprehensive understanding of these subject matters, that, that would be the equivalent, I think, to sitting down with someone over a cup of coffee and asking them the question, what do you believe about the use of medicinal marijuana in the case of epileptic children? And then walking away from that cup of coffee and assuming that you have a comprehensive understanding of what that person believes about drugs at large. Okay, you can't do that from this passage. Paul doesn't set it up that way. And so realizing that, still as a pastor, want to create space for you to be able to ask questions and to engage and get answers to your questions. And so a couple of things that that we want to do. One, uh, I would refer you to... Google these three words this week if you have questions about any of these topics. Google the words, Ask Pastor John. Ask Pastor John. You can write that down. There's a pastor up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've quoted him numerous times. His name's John Piper. Um, If I could fly up, if we had the budget to do it and just have coffee with him once a month, I would do it in a heartbeat. That would be a line item in our budget. Great man of God who's very tethered to the scriptures, has impacted my own life personally, and took it upon himself somewhere along the way in the last few years to to establish a ministry entitled Ask Pastor John, where he literally sits down for five to ten minute sound bites, video, audio, and answers hard questions that people in the church are asking. Questions about marriage, questions about singleness, questions about sex, questions about divorce, church leadership, um, the inerrancy of the scriptures, and the list goes on and on and on. And so that would be one. One resource that might be helpful for you as you leave this week and, and think through these topics and think about the questions that you have. But another thing that we want to do is in-house to try to address some of these things as well. And so if you have questions that arise as you um, come out of this morning's sermon, 
we've set up a basket in the back of the room. You can look back right now and see it is sitting on a, a table with a white tablecloth right here at the back of the, the middle aisle. And at any given point, whether it's when you're taking communion or as you leave this morning, if you want to write a question down on the Connect card that's in the basket under the chair in front of you and just drop it in that basket, then, then what I'm going to do is set aside some time, maybe not this week because we're going to talk about these topics again next week from a different angle, but coming out of next week at least to set up a blog on our website with those questions and then some helpful, trustworthy, gospel-centered links to articles that have been written to answer those questions. Um, one, that saves me from having to write 20 different blog articles, which there's no way that would ever happen. And, and two, still brings to bear the answers to your questions in a way that hopefully is helpful for you. So that's a resource that you have as you leave this place this week and next week we'll have that available to you as well. So that's one thing to keep in mind. This is not a, a systematic theology of these topics. It's not a comprehensive overview of these topics. Number two, anytime you're talking about uh, marriage and sex and singleness, there, there's this there's this thing that happens at a heart level with us where um, we, we sometimes find a way to suppress the truth based on the credibility of the communicator. And so it would be very easy this morning to, to look at a guy like me and to go, you're a pastor, you've only been married for seven years, you haven't gone at this thing for 30 like me, um, you don't wrestle with things like I do because you're at a place of church leadership, you don't have struggles like I do. Hopefully you don't believe that at this point. If you've been around long enough, you've heard me share my own sin and unbelief presently in my life. And so it would be very easy to respond that way and to go, I'm gonna suppress the content itself, the truth of what God's word says based on the guy who's communicating it. And so let me be very upfront with you this morning before we even dive into verse one of this morning's passage and let you know that there have been several times in the seven years that I've been married that it's by the grace of God and, and my belief and my wife's belief in, in the beauty of the covenant, the way God has designed covenant that has kept us together in our marriage. Those two things, there have been moments where the sheer grace of God and our belief that, that a covenant is meant to uh, establish permanency in a, in a union between a man and a woman that has kept us together as a married couple. And I'm happy to sit down over coffee with you and share with you those ugly moments in our marriage. If you're coming in this thing uh, this morning and you're single and you're going, well, you can't relate to me possibly because uh, you're not a single person, you're married. Um, let me articulate up front this, that I was the last of, of uh, a friend group in college that was a dozen strong to get married. Out of all my friends, I was the last one to do it. Um, at the ripe old age of 28, some of you are older than that and you're single. And, and so where you'll be inclined to suppress the truth is to go, well, you haven't been going at it as long as I have, or you didn't go at it as long as I did before you, you got married. Um, don't do that. Don't, don't suppress the truth of what God has to say in the scriptures based on me. Don't allow me to be the factor that deters you from hearing what what God has to say to you this morning. For some of you, God's gonna point you back to the past this morning. He's gonna point you back to seasons leading up to present day that you've gone through um, that, that have been really hard, that maybe there's a need to look back and to establish and pursue reconciliation with God and other people. Maybe there's a need to confess things past tense that have happened in your life. For others of you, you're going through things right now that, that God is gonna bring to bear by way of his very word. And for others of you, you're gonna be inclined to go, I don't see how this applies to me at all. And, and one of the worst things that you could possibly do is, is not acknowledge the fact that if it doesn't seem to today, that it very well might a few months from now, a few years from now, and you'll wish that you had engaged this with more intentionality. So with those things being said, as my disclaimers, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 will be in the first 16 verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats in the row in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to this morning's passage. That Bible's yours. If you don't own one, take it for free as the church's gift to you. We're excited that you'd leave here with a Bible if you don't own one currently. I'm not going to read through the entirety of the passage for time's sake. Let me pray and we'll just jump into verse 1 and we'll start working our way through this morning's text. God, what a, what a devastation it would be if we walk away with more head knowledge about marriage and divorce and singleness and sex and just have that sit at a mind level and not, 
make its way down and seep into the depths of our, our heart and very being. So, uh, God, would you do what, what only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to see what you want us to see? Would you help us to hear what you want us to hear? Would you open our hearts to receive that which you want us to receive? Um, would you overcome the fickleness of our hearts, um, even in moments where we would desire to possibly suppress the very truth of your word? And God, would you work in our lives? Would you remind us this morning, uh, Jesus, that your grace is lavish, uh, that your grace and love overcome all sin, and that you are good, and you have made a covenant with us, and it is unbreakable. We ask these things in your name, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Picking up in verse 1, as we dive into verse 1, it would be helpful to know that um, this particular text that we're looking at this morning is divided into two sections. So the first seven verses of chapter 7 are, are going to be your general principles having to do with these, these very topics that uh, we're going to be looking at this morning. When you dive into verses 8 through 16, all of a sudden you start getting into some case studies. So Paul lays out some truth for us in the first seven verses, and then he goes, I know you guys have asked some questions, so let me address some particular people groups in, in the church in Corinth. And so he does that beginning in verse 8. So it's with that in mind that we look at verse 1, which says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you go back to chapter 6, there was this language being thrown around in the church of Corinth, this language of all things are lawful for me. Most scholars believe that, again, in verse 1 here, we have a statement that's coming from the church in Corinth. So most of your Bibles likely have this statement in quotation marks. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, that, that Paul is receiving that statement from the church in Corinth, and now he's addressing it. And in one sense, Paul would agree with that statement, Right? A single life of celibacy has its advantages in making much of Jesus. Paul lived that kind of life. We see that in verse 8 moving forward, and we'll get there momentarily. But, but in another sense, Paul knows that the church in Corinth is swinging the pendulum, so to speak. That, that they've gone in chapters 5 and 6 from this deification of sex, making it an idol, making it ultimate, to the demonization of sex in chapter 7. That going back to chapter 5, if you remember, if you were around in the spring, there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom, and the church is saying, look at us. God's grace abounds. Look at what kind of sin God's grace can, can cover. Look at all the sin that Jesus died for, which is an abuse of the gospel. It's a belittling of Jesus' blood on the part of the church in Corinth. If you fast forward to chapter 6, again, this statement, all things are lawful for me. This statement's being used by the church to justify sexual immorality, taking sex, which is a good thing, and making it an ultimate thing, which makes it no longer a good thing in our lives. And so as a, as a response, as a swinging of the pendulum, going into chapter 7, the, the church in Corinth is saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In light of all this, why not just go for abstinence in all situations, even in, even in marriage, so that we don't have to deal with, with all of these issues? And so there's a swinging of the pendulum, you might say. We, we see this in our lives all the time, stepping outside of the particular topic of sex and just looking at our lives at large. Um, is it not true that for many of us, uh, we, we experience this pendulum swing at some point in our lives? Maybe for you, it's that um, you grew up as a kid, um, and your story is very messy, fill, filled with great um, seasons of sin and reckless living. And then you became a Christian, and, and things went well for, for a season, but all of a sudden you found yourself um, enslaved by your own pursuit of self-righteousness. So that if you didn't read your Bible a certain number of minutes a day or a certain number of days a week or uh, you didn't pray a certain number of times per week or you didn't uh, engage every time the church doors were open, you, you started to feel uh, the weight of something internally. What, what's happening there and what's happened in many of our lives, if, if that's your story, something similar to that, is that we're trading one cruel taskmaster for another. We're trading the, the slave driver of sin for the slave driver of self-righteousness and legalism. And for others of us, we see the exact opposite takes place. We grew up in a legalistic family. Maybe some of us, that's our story. And the minute we, we got the keys to the car, we, we were off to the races. 
And, and we thought we were pursuing true freedom only to find ourselves uh, in the midst of just a complete train wreck created by our own sin and selfishness and kingdom building. And the reality in, in, in that kind of story is that there's a trading for the bondage of legalism to, to a swinging of the pendulum and adopting a new taskmaster, namely the cruel taskmaster of sin as a slave driver in life. We, we do this all the time. We bounce from one ditch to the other, and somehow we manage to miss the gospel path in the middle of, of all of it, which says that, that Jesus lived my life. He died my death. He rose, conquering sin and death, and it's in looking to him and his cross for hope that I find true freedom. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says that, that we can veer into the ditch of, of religion and find legalism and bondage to our own self-righteousness to, to, drive, uh, to drive us in terms of taskmaster, or we can fall into the ditch of irreligion and, and find our sin to, to to lead us as a cruel taskmaster. It's only in Christ that you find true freedom. The people in Corinth had swung that pendulum. They had gone from the, the deification uh, of sin, making it uh, an idol, making it ultimate, to the demonization of sin. There's nothing new under the sun. This has been going on for centuries. Um, leading up to the Reformation, the church considered sex a necessary evil, even in marriage. Shared uh, some of these uh, statements with you back in the spring if you were around, but let me just refresh you. Um, many of the early church fathers uh, believed things like this. Tertullian thought that the extinction of the human race was a better alternative to procreation. So we should all just die off rather than pursue sexual intimacy. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, thought that married couples should be ashamed of their sexuality. If you feel anything, you should feel great shame about the fact that, that you do. If there's a sex drive within you, even if you're married, you should feel bad about that. Augustine, who I've quoted before on numerous occasions, great early church father, most of what he said was amazing, but with respect to sex, Augustine thought that intercourse was lawful, but that sexual passion was a sin. So, so you should be intimate with your spouse, but you shouldn't feel anything for them as you do. And then finally, the Catholic church started prohibiting sex on what they deemed to be holy days. And by the time Martin Luther showed up on the scene, the number of holy days on the calendar of the Catholic Church where sex was prohibited, 183. You do the math, out of 365 days, that's 50% of, of a, a calendar year that you're not allowed to engage in intimacy at a sexual level with, with your spouse. Paul's addressing this kind of issue as, as he dives into chapter 7 and he says, yes, singleness is good to um, live a life that can be singly devoted to the Lord is a good thing. Verse 2, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, this verse has been taken out of context horrifically so that um, people look at a verse like this and they go, if you're single, you've never been married, but you're burning with lust, go find somebody and fix that problem. But, but that's not remotely what Paul's saying here in context. In fact, the word have here in verse two um, doesn't mean to get married at all. It means to be sexually intimate in the context of a covenant marriage. That He's speaking to married couples here. You'll see this as we look at the remainder of this paragraph, verses two through five, all drive at the same thing, that Paul's not reducing marriage to do it so you don't lust. That's not remotely Paul's concept of marriage. Paul's not arguing for why a person should get married at all in this particular passage. Rather, he's arguing for why a person shouldn't withdraw from sexual intimacy in a marriage. That's a big difference. That makes sense? So in other words, the practical sermon application, if you're married this morning, if you're in the context of a covenant marriage, the practical sermon application for you coming out of verses one through five is this. Pursue sexual intimacy with your spouse and do it a lot. Like, that's the sermon application. I don't know if you've heard that one before. Maybe it's been a while, but, but that's what Paul would say coming out of this morning's text. Go home and have sex with your wife today, husbands. Go home and have sex with your husbands today, Wives, that Paul is driving at the crucial importance of sexual intimacy in a marriage. And he goes on to further unpack that in verses three and four. Look at what he says. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. A couple things here. There are many in the church and outside of the church that think that Paul is a woman hater, that he's a a chauvinist. But notice the mutual equality in verses 3 and 4 here. That that Paul's saying the husband should give to, uh, to his wife her conjugal rights and vice versa. That he's saying that the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and vice versa. That there's a both and going on here. That in Paul's day, this would be a great challenge of the status quo, articulating the value of women. Secondly, notice the selfless nature of marital intimacy in these verses. Notice that it doesn't say the husband should get his conjugal rights and likewise the wife. Rather, it says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That there's a mutual giving in this verse rather than getting. Also notice that for the husband, it's not about his conjugal rights, but the wives. It's not, hey, you owe me. I'm due this in our marriage. Like, you, you, you owe me this. But rather, it's um, that the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and vice versa. That the language of these verses is selfless in nature. That's what marriage is. A, a great reason that marriages struggle oftentimes is simply because two selfish people come together and, and heighten their selfishness. Rather than seeing the beauty that marriage in its covenant nature is built off of the covenant between Christ and his church, which is as selfless as you can possibly imagine, right? Christ came and died for the church. He didn't come, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now the church responds in selfless, sacrificial giving back to Christ in a response of his selflessness toward us through his life, death, and resurrection. If we could somehow equate the way Jesus feels about his bride into our own marriages, married people in the room, myself included, our marriage just would be completely revamped, I think. If you go on to verse 5, Paul goes on to say this as he wraps up this, this idea that he's driving at early on in this passage. He says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this is amazing. This is the first time in this passage that you actually get a command, an imperative. Paul's been talking in the language of, of you should do this. Like, husband, you should treat your wife this way. Wives, you should treat your husband this way. He gets to verse 5, and he says, here's a command. Do not deprive one another. That's an imperative in Scripture. It's meant to be obeyed. That pursuing sexual intimacy in the covenant context of marriage is a matter of obediently honoring the Lord in the same way that picking up your Bible and reading it is an obedience of the command of God. And in fact, the the exception to sexual intimacy in a marriage, according to this verse, comes with some ground rules. Number one, both parties must agree says in verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That in Judaism, interestingly, back in Paul's day, the husband had the right to, to just leave his wife for prayer and study, and all he had to do was say, I'm out, honey. See ya. Paul says, husband, you're not the sovereign of this relationship. There has to be mutual agreement. At the same time, fast-forwarding to our context, Oftentimes, what I hear um, in, in terms of marital struggles, right, we men, we, we can have sex seven days a week, right? Like, we're, by nature, that's who we, we are, it seems. But what happens in our context is that oftentimes, there's a using of sex as a means of manipulation in marriage on the part of the wife. So the husband manipulated the wife in Paul's day. Now we see a, a complete turnaround of that. And I'm not saying it doesn't go both ways, but I'm saying in marital counseling, more often than not, I see this coming from the vantage point of, of the wife depriving the husband as a way of punishing him and manipulating the relationship. So I would say, according to this verse, if you've gone into abstinence mode without your spouse's consent, you're in sin. That's a huge problem for your marriage that needs to be worked out. Paul goes on to say, secondly, that it must be for a limited time, that there's got to be a light at the end of the tunnel, 
that part of marriage is, is oneness. It's you've been declared one flesh. Now you're becoming what you've been declared to be. It's just like Christianity, how it works. You've been declared righteous in Christ, and now you're growing in righteousness. You're growing in becoming what you've been declared to be. And so the idea that there, there wouldn't be a light at the end of the tunnel, that you would just separate and go into abstinence mode without any idea of when you're going to come back together is highly problematic in terms of Paul's theology and in terms of the way marriage is intended to work. And in fact, he goes on to say that there must be a return, a coming together again. And lastly, Paul says that the purpose should be for spiritual growth and intimacy. He says, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That, that the purpose is not to punish your spouse. The purpose is not to manipulate your spouse. The purpose is not to hang out with the boys four nights a week watching football and depriving your spouse of that intimacy. But rather, it, it's, a, it's a coming together with great purpose and intentionality unless there's a season where it makes more sense for you to p- pursue Jesus. And even in doing that, it's so that you and your spouse grow closer to one another. Right? You've heard it before. You should be growing closer to Jesus, so should the other person, and in doing so, you're going to grow close to one another. That's the idea of this verse. It's that you're actually enhancing the intimacy of your marriage anyway by taking that season apart from one another in terms of sexual intimacy. But Paul says, let there be a limited season of that so that, according to the end of verse 5, Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That There is a battle in the spiritual realm. There is real spiritual warfare taking place. If you're married in this room right now, you have a bullseye on you. And here's why. Because the covenant between a husband and a wife is meant to be the shadow that displays the greater reality of the covenant between Christ and his church. That your marriage is a sure display of how Jesus feels about his church, about the redeemed. And so what better way to destroy the perception of Christ and the church than to destroy one marriage after another, which is why the statistics look like they do. Satan is on the prowl. He's coming after marriages one by one. And what Paul is saying is that having sex with your spouse regularly is a way of doing battle with Satan. It is a a taking up of your arms, so to speak, to wage war against the enemy. That's amazing. That's very different than anything I ever heard, even as a kid in and out of the church. I still heard about sex from time to time. It was kind of the thing you didn't talk about, but somehow I still managed to catch a sermon or two. And no one ever painted a picture of sex like that for me as an idea that you actually can fight and wage war against the enemy and display the covenant love of Christ for his church by pursuing intimacy with your spouse. Paul goes on in verse six to say this, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This word concession means permission. And so Paul's saying, this is not a command. I'm permitting this. Uh, Scholars disagree as to what he's pointing to. Is he referring back to um, the abstaining from sex for short periods of time and saying, that's not a command. You don't have to do that. If that's going to train wreck your marriage, you're permitted to do that, but don't do it if it's going to create a disaster. Maybe he's looking back to the verse we just talked about. Maybe he's looking forward to verse 7 and saying, you're permitted to be single like I am, and that would be great if you're a single person, but that's not a command that everyone pursue the single life. The single life was something to be celebrated in Paul's day. There was an opportunity for single-minded devotion to the Lord if you were single. Now we look at it very differently in our culture for some reason, and yet, as we'll get into in the next couple verses, we'll see that that there's a, a beauty and a gift in terms of both of these, that if you notice in verse 7, Paul says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. That Paul's saying that not getting married is good, it's a gift from God. And Paul's saying getting married is good. It's a gift from God. My my guess would be in in this room, in a room this size, that um, there are several people in this room who are single who don't want to be. And my guess would also be that there are maybe some in this room who are married and don't want to be. Or maybe at least you feel that way from time to time. And what Paul is saying is that where God has you is exactly where he wants you. That that singleness does allow a single-minded devotion to the Lord's work, and we'll get into that next week in next week's passage, and that marriage, as I said before, is the most visible shadow of a greater reality of the covenant between Jesus and his bride, 
the church. That marriage and singleness provide two unique angles to display both the goodness and the glory of God in very different ways. That that your singleness, your marriage, is missional by design. Going back to the Why Church series, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the sun. He's the center of the, of the universe. You and I are the moon. We reflect his light in different ways. That we've been positioned very uniquely at this time in human history, at this place geographically in human history, to reflect who he is uniquely where he's placed us. And the same could be said about your singleness or your marriage. That there's a missional bent to it. That even that is meant to communicate something about God's nature and who he is. That that the challenge is getting past the fickleness of our own hearts to see the gift for what it is. That Here's one way you could put it. To both marrieds and singles. God hasn't given you socks for Christmas. Okay, Some single people view their singleness as a pair of socks that you open up the box and you go, Seriously? Socks? That's That's what you gave me. I thought you loved me. And that's how people view their singleness oftentimes in the midst of their singleness. Other people view their marriages that way. They look at the marriage that they're a part of and they go, seriously, God, this is the, these are the cards you dealt me? Looks like a pair of dress socks to me. And yet God would look at your marriage very differently than you do. God would look at your singleness very differently than you do. That I would argue that that's a lie from the devil of hell himself if you believe that. And that you need to reject that lie not only for the sake of your joy, but for the sake of of God's glory, which is meant to be displayed in that very gift that he's given you. That's what Paul says in verses 1 through 7, just some general principles on these topics. But then he goes in verse 8 into some case studies, moving on through the rest of the passage this morning. And he kind of breaks things down into uh, demographic categories. So if you pick up verse 8, he says this, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Who's Paul talking to here? Let me tell you who I think Paul's talking to, and, and a lot of scholars agree with this. I think Paul's talking to both widowers and widows. That when you see that word unmarried... There are are several reasons why I don't think that's a broad category of people. Number one, there wasn't a word in the Greek of Paul's day for widower that you could translate into widower. So you had to use this word that could be translated in a number of ways that just kind of was a catch-all term of unmarried. But if you look forward to verses 25 through 38, Paul's going to cover the unmarrieds, the singles who have never married, for, for quite a bit. He's going to cover that for a number of of verses. And so it makes perfect sense that Paul's covering all of the scenarios involving marriage from verses 8 through 16. If you think about it, he's gone back and forth between husbands and wives, wives and husbands, this, this mutual equality kind of thing. And so it makes sense that Paul would include widows and widowers in this pattern. And if you think about it, in his day, there were a lot of widows and a lot of widowers. Right? People didn't live as long as they do in our day. So you had to deal with this issue. Not only that, but Paul wrote this letter right on the, the verge of Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome. You're going to have a lot of Christians dying and a lot of people left without their spouses. And so God is kind in providing this word so that people know what to do in those moments when they arise. And Paul says, it's good to remain single, leveraging your singleness for the mission of God, for the glory of God, if you can do that. That in the same way that people who have never uh, been married and have been given the gift of singleness from God, it's possible that in light of the loss of your spouse, God may, may be giving you a new gift in a new season of life. That's very possible. And so he says, be content with where you are, if that's you. That would be my grandmother. My grandmother lost my grandfather to Alzheimer's a few years ago, and I would be shocked if she were to get Remarried, She's perfectly content as a single woman now, and she's able to do things for the glory of God that she wasn't able to do before as she was caring for her husband. Now there's a, a freedom in a sense, and I don't mean that in a, uh, in a way that uh, is harsh, but, but there's a sense in which she now is able to devote time that she wasn't able to devote before as she was caring for him to to other things for the glory of God. And she is doing that. And it's really sweet to see God using her in new ways in this new season of her life. However, Paul says, gives a caveat. It's good to to marry if it comes down to marriage 
or sexual immorality. That Remember, categorically, we're talking about people who originally didn't have a gift of singleness. The sex drive had been turned on. The engine had been turned on. They had been married at some point in their lives, and then they lost their spouse. And so Paul's saying, hey, if, if, you can't, if the engine is still on and running, and it becomes problematic in terms of your very holiness before the Lord, then get married. It would be a good idea for you to now do that at this point rather than live a life um, of sexual immorality that would be dishonoring to God himself. That's case study number one. Probably doesn't apply to a lot of us in the room. Case study number two would apply to more, I think, in this room, which is this. Paul says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, Here Paul's talking about two Christians that are married to each other. We know that because if you go a little bit further into the passage in verse 12, he says, and to the rest of you, I say, and by the rest of you, what Paul means is a Christian married to a non-Christian. And so he's writing this letter to the church. So verses 10 and 11 would be Christians married to Christians, which, which would be many people in this room. And Paul, if you notice, changes his tone a little bit here. That, that everything has been in the language of um, you, should, you should think this way. You should approach your marriage this way. The only time he, he goes into imperative command mode is don't deprive your spouse of sexual intimacy. That's the only time he gets intense, which is a good thing if you're married. You should be excited that Paul gets intense there. But in verse 10, notice this shift. Paul gets more stern here. He moves from this language of concession or permission into command mode, and he says this. He says, to the married, I give this charge. That word can also be translated as command. I command you, Paul says. And look at Look at where he goes next. He says, not I, but the Lord. What's Paul doing there? Well, if you go back to the gospel accounts, Jesus spoke on marriage and divorce on a number of occasions, four times actually, Matthew chapter five, Matthew 19, Luke 16, and Mark chapter 10. And so Jesus, in light of Jesus's words, Paul says, listen, I know that divorce is a serious matter and it's a controversial matter. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna defer to Jesus on this one. It doesn't mean that I don't have any apostolic authority, but, but I'm actually gonna go back to the source, uh, the one that, that you profess to know and love and call savior and king. And I want you to hear what came out of his very mouth. And so for some of us, as, as we listen to what Jesus has to say here uh, in just a moment, Perhaps this would be the, the quote that you would put into that sermon series, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. Paul's referring back to Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says this, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and, and marries another, she commits adultery. That Jesus is, is very, very black and white here. The human heart doesn't like not having an out. And so Paul says, if, if you don't like this, you need to take it up with the one that you bend your knee to as king, the one that you believe bled out and died for you because he's the one who said this first of all. If you, if you go back to Greco-Roman subculture, you may notice in these two verses, verses 10 and 11, that you have this language of divorce and separate. And so I want to... I wanna, um, handle that, that nuanced language because I think, I think we miss something in this if we don't. Um, in the world we live in, those are two very different things, right? You can, you can get a separation from your spouse where you're, you're kind of doing your own thing and, and you may reconcile or you may end up getting a divorce. It's kind of one step toward divorce uh, if you look at it from one angle or maybe one step toward reconciliation if, you, if you're a hopeful person um, in terms of reconciliation. But those are two very different things in the context of where we live and, and breathe the air. But if you go back to Paul's day in Greco-Roman subculture, the, the words separate and divorce were synonymous with each other. It, it was actually a, a question of passive versus, versus active language. And so to divorce someone would be to send them away. To separate from someone would be to withdraw from that person yourself. 
But the same thing was happening, that in Paul's day, you didn't even have to present a certificate of divorce. It was something that could be done, but uh, people were considered married just by coming under the same roof in that subculture. And, and if you were to leave and split and live under different roofs, that was considered to be divorce in Paul's day. So I want you to hear that because I want you to understand that um, the language that Paul's using here is driving at one thing ultimately, which makes sense as he points back to Jesus who uses this language of divorce um, very, very intentionally. What, what Paul's saying is Christ followers, if you're a follower of Jesus, which means that you believe in the covenant between Christ and you, his bride, that divorce is just not an option. That, that if you're going to separate, Paul says, if, if you've resolved in your mind that I'm done with this, I, I just can't go about this anymore. If the fickleness and sinfulness of the human heart is going to come to bear in that way, he says, even so, you have two options that show that you actually believe the gospel and find Christ to be sufficient for you in and of himself. He says, one, you can remain unmarried, believing that reconciliation may happen at some point, believing that the grace of God has no bounds. And it might be when you're, when you're so old that all you can do is share a rocking chair together that you finally come back to one another. That, that he says, that's a crazy beautiful display of the gospel, which shows the permanency of Christ's relationship with the church. Our culture doesn't think that way. Our culture thinks if I'm gonna leave this relationship, I'm certainly not gonna live a life of singleness until the day I die. You're crazy if you think that. I need to find my own happiness and joy. And so that kind of thinking just doesn't gel with, with where I am. Paul says, remain unmarried, or he says, secondly, be reconciled to your spouse. Those are the two options that, that Paul throws out there. Why? If you go back to Mark chapter 10, a couple verses before Jesus says what he says about divorce, Jesus says this, he refers us back to the creation story, and he says, from the beginning, let me catch myself up. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but, what, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That that Jesus argues that there's more than just a signing of, of a, a legal document that happens when two people come together in, in the context of covenant marriage, that, that God is actually bringing together the two into one. And the idea that man would then look at God and say, you got it wrong. So I'm going to separate what you brought together, God, in my own human autonomy is a belittling of the very sovereignty of God and, and a belief in God's goodness at the end of the day. That's why Paul says, going on to next week's passage in verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. As long as he's got breath in his lungs, you're bound to him. You can shoot him if you want to, but then you're guilty of a different sin. Sam Crabtree, pastor up in Minneapolis, uh, who's under the leadership of, I wish I could say my good friend John Piper, says it this way. He says, we are free to divorce when Jesus divorces the church, which is never. Now, that's a hard statement. There, there are a lot of stories in this room that are brought into this room. You're, you're a part of relationships outside of this room that, that might would read this statement and go, I don't like that. That's a hard word. And the reality is that, that we can look at that and, and see that as a strong statement about how God feels about divorce. And that's true. But that's under the banner of looking at it as a strong statement about how God feels about you. Does that make sense? That Jesus isn't going anywhere. That you're going to cheat on Jesus a number of times before you breathe your last breath, and he's not going to stop pursuing you. That that's what the gospel says. The gospel says that you can't do anything futuristically that would cause God to love you more, and you haven't done anything that would cause him to love you less. That when God looks at you, he's looking at Christ's record on your behalf. Jesus loves you deeply. Jesus isn't waiting for you to cheat once so he can break up with you. That's not how the gospel works. That that kind of statement is a statement about Christ's deep, permanent love for you through the cross. That's what we need to wrap our minds around. 
That's the scandal of a statement like that. Not what God says about divorce, but what he says about his deep love for us and what marriage then displays as a result of that covenant as a shadow of that greater reality. That's what's at stake. So when people ask me, what would I say to someone considering divorce? This is my statement. I would plead with you not to shatter the image of Christ and his church. Please don't shatter the image of Christ in his church. Fight with all that you have to continue on so that when people look at your marriage, they see a parable of permanency that points to the gospel and how Jesus feels about us. If you go on to verse 12, you get the last of these case studies. Paul says, to the rest I say, and I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Here's the case study of a Christian married to a non-Christian. Um, and, and that's real in our context. Um, you know, that's something that, that I think we see from time to time. Um, it, it might be a little bit more subtle and nuanced, actually, in our subculture because we, we, we actually may see it in, in a marriage in which there are two people who profess to be Christians, and one of them actually is, and one of them is a cultural box-checking moralist, right? So we, we have all of that going on in our culture alongside of, of the real just uh, stern profession of I don't love Jesus and you do. And so Paul addresses that. Um, and it makes sense in his context, right? If you go back to last week's story of how the church in Corinth was birthed, um, people are coming to know Jesus like crazy. And, and it's not necessarily happening in pairs. It's not like Noah and the ark. All of a sudden, the wife believes and the husband goes, yep, by osmosis, I do too. And so Paul's addressing this issue. And you can imagine in Paul's day that pagans were caught up in, a, in quite vile behavior. The worship of false gods, um, the, the pursuit of temple prostitutes. Um, there, there were just a litany of things that would have been considered vile according to Christian standards. And the Christian might be inclined to say, how can I live with such a person? They'll make me unclean, won't they, Paul? But look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, here's why you shouldn't separate if, you're, if your unbelieving spouse is good with keeping this marriage intact. He says, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That Paul's not saying that all of a sudden your spouse becomes a Christian because you are, like your faith becomes theirs. That would defy everything else that the Bible says about the gospel. But what Paul's saying is you think your unbelieving spouse will make you unclean. Exactly the opposite is true. Because you're a believer, your unbelieving spouse comes into consistent contact with holy things, with holy behavior, with holy speech, with holy influences, with holy prayers. N.T. Wright says it this way in his commentary. He says, as with Jesus' healing in which he touched lepers and other unclean people and instead of being infected with their diseases, infected them instead with God's new life, so Paul believed that holiness could be more powerful than uncleanness. He goes on to say, the relationship would not need to be damaging for the Christian. The unbelieving partner would be regularly within the reach of God's love in Christ, shining through the believing partner. That what Paul's saying is you, you don't have to leave your unbelieving family because you view them as unclean, because they, you, you feel like they might make you dirty. Paul says you stay with your unbelieving family because you bring the holiness of God into their very lives. And not only spouses, but children can be reached with this kind of love. So if that's you, soak that truth in. If you know people, that that's their story. Maybe that's your friend. And maybe, maybe that's been a thought of yours. You should leave him. He doesn't love Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. You need to sit down with that friend over a cup of coffee and say, you just need to permeate the gospel into his life or her life by, by loving Jesus and looking to the cross of Christ and believing the gospel and just keep doing that over and over and over again every day that you pick your head up off of the pillow in the hopes that he or she will come to know and love Jesus himself or herself. That if you're a Christian married to a non-Christian and your spouse wants to stay married, you do it. Welcome to your mission field. That's a sweet opportunity to bring the gospel to bear and to see redemption happen within close proximity. 
Paul goes on to say that there is, there is one loophole to this, one, one caveat. He says in verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, initiates it, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That, that if the unbelieving spouse initiates the split, Paul says, don't fight it. You, you've got to keep in mind that he's thinking very missionally here in verses 12 through 16, that, that if you fight the breakup, you might actually do more damage than good as far as reaching your spouse for Christ, your children for Christ. That if you go back to the precedent of verses 10 and 11 and the missional nature of what Paul's driving at here, I'm inclined to believe that Paul would expect the Christian in this situation to do the same thing as, as that in verses 10 and 11, which is this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go... I'm going to go about my business because you've initiated this and there's obviously great hostility here. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay single in the hopes and trust that, that the way God has pursued me, that he can bring this back together at some point. Even when we're 70, I'm going to believe that. That's crazy. That's crazy thinking. But that's the missional nature of what Paul's driving at. In fact, I, I think the, the last part of this passage um, it, does a great disservice to us. I love the, the ESV translation of the Bible. Um, 99 out of 100 times, I would say it's great. This is the one time that I'd say it's terrible. And, and here's why. There's one word uh, toward the end of verse 15 that the ESV leaves out that's found in the Greek, and it's the simple word, but. And so if you inserted that word, here's what these verses would look like. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. But, but God has called you to peace. That word peace means all the parts being joined together, a wholeness, a knitting together with your spouse. God has called you to, speak, to peace, however, for how do you know, wife, whether your husband, uh, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? The churches use this verse in the negative sense to say, you should just go about your business because you need to be a person of peace and reconciliation. And after all, how do you know they're going to become a Christian? It's probably not going to happen. But the Greek would say, no, the exact opposite. Paul gives this tiny little caveat that if your unbelieving spouse says out the door and it's a hostile situation, you go, but you pursue the, the knitting together the, the praying for reconciliation, because how do you know? They just might become a Christian. If you, if you live in that way, that you display the covenant for them, even from afar. This passage is scandalous. It's, contra, it's highly controversial. But yet, if you see the gospel in it, it points to the beauty of the permanence of how Jesus deeply feels about you and has revealed that through his cross. The heart of this morning's passage as we close is this. Single Christians in the room, God hasn't given you socks for Christmas. We'll talk about that next week. He's given you a sweet, precious gift to leverage for his glory. Get past the fickleness of your own heart and see the beauty of the gift for what it really is. And to married Christians in the room, God hasn't given you so socks for Christmas either. He's given you a precious gift that puts on display how Jesus feels deeply about his bride. Fight for your marriage. Pursue intimacy. Don't give up. Don't shatter the image of Christ and his church. And if you have, turn to him in confession and believe the deep scandalous nature that the love of God and the grace of God has no bounds, that he deeply loves you, that there's nothing that you have done that would cause God to love you less. He loves you and he'll never leave you. That his covenant with you is permanent. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.